For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, We're going to continue our walk through Ephesians. A couple of announcements I want to highlight. One, if you're not aware of it, um, it's Halloween this week. Happy Halloween or happy Reformation Day, depending on how you like to approach it. Uh, It is both. Um, This Wednesday, yeah, Wednesday's Halloween. Um, Edwardsville has like this crazy tradition of a Halloween parade. Um, It was new to me when I moved to the community. It's huge. 25,000 people come out to this thing. It's one of the largest Halloween parades in the country. It's a big deal in our community, and uh, it's a great way for us just to join our neighbors in celebration um, and, and just kind of move into the natural rhythms of our community um, and, and, and really make Halloween more than just about me. <laughs> How much candy am I going to get, right? I know you guys still want your candy. Um, you're going to get a lot if you come to the parade, but really it's a way for us to meet our neighbors. And we're going to be um, out here popping some popcorn and um, giving, you know, handing out some coffee and, and some, some hot cocoa. Every, every year I get to meet some neighbors out there, and it's just a good time to meet people and, and, um, and have fun as a community, to hang out um, as a community and, and enjoy it as well as, as kind of just, you know, meeting our neighbors in the process. So I'm going to encourage you on Wednesday to join us. Here in Edwardsville, we, we, uh, we trick-or-treat the night before. Halloween. Um, so I'm going to encourage you, if you live in Edwardsville or one of the communities around here that does that, um, don't close your curtains, right? Don't turn off your porch light and disappear for the evening, all right? Like, get out front. Build a fire in your driveway. Give out candy. Give out good candy. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't be that guy, right? The one that's like, I'll do it, but it's cheap. You know, like, like be the guy that people want to come to your house. Why? Because it's a great way just to connect with people in the community. It's a great way to meet people. If you're out in your front yard, you know how it is if you live in one of these areas, man. It's, it's so easy just to kind of see people when they're driving in the morning and come back at night and you wave at them. And, and that's like the only conversation you ever get, although occasionally you might have a little bit more. This is a great chance just to sit down and get to know people, right? This is one of those evenings in our community. People just hang out. And if you build a, a fire in your driveway, like in a fire pit, not, I suppose you can do it in the driveway. That works too. But however you do it, I mean, it's just people are going to come over, uh, pull your grill out, make some hot dogs, whatever. But but use it as an opportunity to not just um, kind of get through the week, but to meet your neighbors. And if you're followers of Christ, you know what I'm talking about. This is an opportunity for us to get into the rhythms of our culture, to do what we're already doing, but to do it with missional intentionality, which means that we're very simply getting to know people so that we can come to love them better. And that's what we're doing, is, is trying to figure out ways in our community to, to get into the rhythms of our, our, our culture and, and um, to know people and love people well. So join, do that, you know, do Halloween well, and then join us on Wednesday night. The parade comes right in front of our place. Um, there's like probably two tons of candy that gets dropped right here on the, on the corner. Um, and and there's going to be a lot of people. Um, it'll be a lot of fun. So join us uh, for that. The second thing I wanted to announce is we do have a baptism celebration coming up. If you're a follower of Christ and you haven't been dunked, you need to. I mean, it's an issue of, of worship. It's also an issue of obedience. Jesus said to do it. Um, and, and that's what, you know, this was our baptism shirt from the last time we did it. And, and, um, and so I'm going to encourage you, if, if you haven't been baptized, if you have questions, if you want to talk about it, if you want to whatever, let us know. Go to Connection Point, which is that little, little kiosk thing right there in the lobby with the sign over it that says Connection Point. It's really easy to find. Um, but somebody will be there and they'll be happy to talk to you about it, help you hook up with a leader if you want to talk about it, help you sign up for it if you need to sign up for it, okay? That's coming up in, in early December. We're still trying to nail down um, the baptismal thing. Um, we, we borrow it from the journey, our parent church. Uh, they're doing baptisms at the end of the year too, so we're trying to figure out if that's going to work. If it doesn't, we may end up having to just go buy a horse trough or something, but we'll figure it out. We're going to make it happen, okay? Um, so if you're a follower of Christ, you haven't been baptized, baptized, um, talk to us. We'd love to walk with you in that. All right, Ephesians. We are dealing with Paul's first prayer 
um, to God for the Ephesians in chapter 1. And we've been sitting in this really for the last, this will be our fourth week in this prayer. We're looking at one key idea each week. And uh, I've really enjoyed the study. I think that this prayer is incredibly relevant to us as followers of Christ. And, and this morning um, is no different. So in chapter 1 of Ephesians, just to set the, the, the stage, Paul has basically laid out the gospel. At the beginning of Ephesians 1, we start an eternity, an eternity pass with God the Father, um, basically choosing to turn sinners into saints, basically saying, I have a plan to redeem and restore a rebellious and lost humanity. I have a plan to adopt uh, rebels and make them sons. I have, I have a plan to make broken people well. I have a plan. And the hero of that plan is Jesus. And at the right time, Jesus came, the Son of God incarnate, um, God in the flesh. And, and His job was ultimately to carry out the plan and to actually go to the battlefield, so fully identify Himself with us that He became one of us, stood in our place. He became our sin and was judged on our behalf, um, completely satisfied God's righteousness in regard to our sin by basically absorbing its punishment, rose again to new life, offering us both forgiveness and redemption and the hope of restoration. And then the Spirit's job, God the Spirit's job, is to come and open our eyes, our, the hearts of our, our hearts to the message of the gospel so that we will come to believe it. I mean, that's the Spirit's job is ultimately to, to um, open our eyes to our desperate condition in our sin and God's incredible solution to that desperate condition in the work of His Son. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three who's one what? One God working in a redemptive purpose. That's kind of the view of Ephesians 1. It's an incredible, incredible view of, of God's eternal purpose to glorify Himself in spite of our sin. And in fact, even to glorify Himself in our sin through the redemptive work of Jesus. Now we get to this prayer, and what Paul is saying basically is, is that the gospel, that good news that we've just talked about, isn't just about getting to heaven. It's not just about believing it so that you have a brighter future. It's about continuing to believe it so that you enter into its reality more and more now, so that your eyes are progressively opened to the reality of the good news of what God has done for us so that we can walk in the greater power and benefit of the gospel now. Okay, so that's kind of what we're looking at. Look at verse 15, and we'll kind of run through and, and bring us up to today. For this reason, because we have such a great gospel, and because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, because I've heard you become believers as a result of this gospel, I don't cease to give thanks for you. I mean, I'm just my, I'm in a posture of, of gratitude as I think about what God has done for you and what's happening in you. I remember you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the source of all that is glorious, the source that of all that satisfies, may give to you His Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that God the Father will, will um, commission the Spirit of God to come to us. Why? To have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, to continually, progressively open our eyes to the blessings we have in the gospel. Three things we've looked at. The first was that you may know the hope to which He has called you. We dealt with that two weeks ago, that the gospel gives us a hope that is better than any earthly hope, Right? It's, it's better than, than any hope you have for a bonus at the end of the year. It's better for any hope you have for the career you're going to have or the person you're going to marry or how wonderful your family's going to be. We have a hope that's eternal, that's rooted in the fact that we were created to experience the glory of God and that in the gospel, once again, we can taste the glory of God because Christ makes us able to do so. When we set our hopes in the glory of God, it, it enlivens our earthly hopes. It makes them more vivid, more real, but it also keeps us from being crushed when they're not fulfilled. Why? Because we have a hope that is greater, that will be fulfilled. It's based on the very promises of God that we've been set apart for the glory of God, for His name, and He will glorify Himself in us for His glory and our good. So we have a greater hope that enables us to go through this life with, 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 uh, without being um, too inflated by our successes and too crushed by our defeats. We have a greater hope. The second thing that he prayed about is that we would um, understand what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In other words, we have a greater purpose. We have a God of mission. He's been on mission from eternity past to call out a people for his name, a people that would live in his glory, a people that would, would represent him as the stewards of creation. They would image God, and they would walk in His glory for their, for their good. So God gets His glory, we get our joy. God has His people, and He has that people. It's called the church. It's this broken, messed up group of people right here and everybody else who's a follower of Christ um, that has been called by the gospel to become um, followers of Jesus. He is progressively working out the blessings of the gospel through the church. 
He's a God of mission, and it's an eternal mission. And that mission informs the motivations of our life. That mission transforms what's truly valuable in life. It transforms the way we look at, at what's worthwhile, what's worth pursuing, what's ultimately worth valuing, and what's going to give us ultimate satisfaction. When we're on mission with God, it allows us to engage every activity of life with more meaning and more purpose because we're not looking to those things to give us ultimate purpose. We're looking to those things to ultimately inform us of the greater purpose. So it frees us again, as our eyes are enlightened, to engage life more fully, okay? The final thing, the thing that we're going to look at this morning is ultimately the thing that empowers those two, and that's the power of God. And you look at um, verse 19, it says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? So we're going to sit in this idea this morning that our eyes need to be opened progressively to the power of God. Now, we talk about this idea of power. Um, I don't know, I think it's kind of a, a mixed thing because we know that ultimately power is destructive, Right? Um, power has to be channeled for good. Power has to be, um, our power, when it's unleashed, has to be unleashed with purpose and with structures and boundaries for it to be good. If you simply have an outburst of raw power, it is inevitably destructive. Um, Uncontrolled raw power destroys stuff. Um, The most powerful example we have of, of, of just raw unharnessed power today would be, um, honestly, the the nuclear bomb. Uh, I can't think of anything that demonstrates what happens when we simply unleash power like that. Um, The atomic bomb, obviously, is a fairly modern um, invention. This is actually from 1946, this picture um, from the Bikini Islands. It was an ongoing test. The first test of atomic power took place in 1945, and it was during World War II. They had been working on this technology, and they had no idea exactly. They had theoretical models. They kind of thought what was going to happen, but in order to figure out what was actually going to happen, they had to blow the thing up. They had to test it to find out what would actually happen. And so in 1945, um, Oppenheimer, who was the, the, the brainiac behind this thing, and, and the military and his crew and all these guys set up this test site and the purpose behind the test was to find out if the entire universe would melt down, uh, but really more than that, just to find out how powerful this thing was, um, what would happen, um, and all that sort of stuff, and, and even if it would even work. And so these guys set it up. In order to measure it, what they did is they built a platform, and on that platform, they put 100 tons, actually 108 tons of dynamite, 108 tons of dynamite, and then they blew it up. I mean, that sounds like fun to me. Um, they just lit it up, and, and they had all these instruments there that were designed to measure the force of the impact. So they measured the crater. They, they measured um, the force of the, the, the wave that came out of it. They did all of this to calibrate their tools, and then they exploded the first um, atomic bomb. Um, they measured it, and um, several months later, those bombs were dropped in actual warfare. We all know that story. It's the end of World War II, uh, Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki, the dropping of, of two atomic bombs. Um, those bombs measured around 20,000 tons of dynamite power. 20,000 tons. Um, I just finished reading a great book last night called um, Unbroken, which was the story of a guy who went through World War II as a, as a POW. And he talked about how in camp there was suddenly this rumor that an entire city vanished because the Allies dropped a single bomb. And they, they were just, they had no way to conceive of that. Entire cities completely gone. Currently, the bombs we have are improved technology. Those were um, um, atomic bombs. We now have the H bombs, which are um, the next generation of nuclear bombs. The bombs we have now are equivalent to 102 million tons of dynamite. <laughs> crazy, crazy power. Isn't that, isn't that fun to think about? Cheerful, yeah? We live in a nuclear world. Just reminding you, there you go. Lovely. Um, but here's the deal. When we unleash power, what happens? Things get destroyed, right? The most we can hope for is to channel that power, to intelligently control that power, to create boundaries around that power so that it can create and produce good. But the power itself, if it is not intelligently channeled, is ultimately destructive. 
Here's the deal. We can channel our power for good, but we measure our power by what we can destroy. We channel our power for good, but we measure our power by what it can destroy. Here's the news we're going into this morning. God's power dwarfs our power. God's power makes our most powerful weapon like a kid's cap gun. Um, His power is fundamentally different from ours. All we're doing, like with an atomic bomb, what are we doing? We're simply unleashing the power God has already put in the creation. He's actually the source of that power. He's the one that creates that power and holds it all together. God measures His power in a totally different way. God doesn't measure His power by what He can destroy. He measures His power by what it creates. He's so powerful that ultimately His measurement, His greatest demonstration of power is not in the taking of life, but in the giving of life. It's an incredible, incredible power. And what's awesome that this passage is talking about is, is that this power isn't just an abstract reality out there somewhere. It's not like he's in this nuclear fission thing somewhere out in space, and sometimes that power leaks out. His power is personal. His power is intimate. His power is guided by love and exercised in grace. And you guys, his power is already in our lives. We just don't know it. We have no idea the power of the gospel, the power of what God's already done. Take a look at um, verse 19, because I want you to see how Paul prays. We'll put it up here on the screen as well. He prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. It is immeasurably great. You can't calibrate this power. There's no way to set up any test that will calibrate the measure of God's power. Why? Because He is the source of power. He is, in fact, power itself. Everything that we understand about power is simply an an expression or an image of who God is. It's immeasurably great. That word for power in the Greek is the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. What he's saying is that when God displays His power, when there's an explosiveness of God's power, it is immeasurably great. And it is toward us who believe. That preposition toward, I love it. It's this idea that it's channeled, that it's in motion. It's not abstract and distant. God's power is already exploding. It's already being exercised. And it's being exercised through the channel of His people. That that God's power is already... We don't have to plead with God to pour out His power. We don't have to plead with God to notice us and exercise His strength on our behalf. It is already in motion. It is already toward and through us through the power of the gospel. So how great is this power? The end of the verse tells us. It's so great that it is according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. I mean, first of all, notice how hard Paul is working to to find vocabulary to convey how great this power is. I mean, the repetitiveness of, of these verses, right? The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working or exertion of his great might, which he worked or exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He's compounding these phrases and these words, basically saying, you just don't get it. You have no concept of how powerful this power is. And the only thing that we can look at that demonstrates to us how powerful this this power is, the only thing that really gives us a glimpse of it is the resurrection of Jesus. That's how powerful God is. The measure of God's power is not what He destroys. It's what He gives life to. His power is measured by what it creates. I mean, what happens when, when God flexes his muscles? Corpses come back to life. Deserts bloom. Things exist that didn't previously exist. God's power is immeasurable. And its measure isn't in how much it can kill, but its unleashed explosive ability to bring life. God's power is resurrection power. God's power actually speaks into what isn't and calls it into being. 
He speaks into what is dead and calls it to life. He speaks into what is hopeless and gives it hope. To kind of understand what this means, because we talk about this resurrection power, this power of life, I want to give it a context. We're going to go to the beginning of the gospel story and, and, and unpack it a little bit. The beginning of the gospel story, by the way, is Genesis. <laughs> We're going to go all the way to the beginning of the Bible because the whole Bible is the story of the good news of a God on mission to redeem and restore. So I want you to take your Bibles and flip all the way to Genesis. How do you get there? Just go all the way to the left, okay? All the way to the beginning. If you've got your iPhone, just search for Genesis. You're good. You can't actually flip the pages. Um, but go to Genesis chapter 1. If you have one of our Bibles, it's page 2. Not hard to find, all right? So we're going all the way to the beginning. Why? Because I want to show you a bomb went off at the beginning of our story. It was a bomb of destruction, a bomb of immeasurable destruction. And when we compare the power of God to it, I think we're going to see some interesting things. In Genesis chapter 3, just to set the setting, Adam and Eve created in the image of God. They're walking in the freedom of their relationship with God. They love one another. They have um, productive work to do. Uh, they have a, they, God gave them a garden. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. God didn't just give them wilderness. He gave them a garden, which means He gave them the gift of culture. And so He basically gave them the raw materials to develop a world and then said, go develop it. Go make art. Go develop science. Go move in the gifts that I've given you and develop them, right? He, he, he doesn't just say, go play harps. He gave them a, a person to love, a job to do, and a God to follow. He was their father. He walked with them in intimacy and delight. There was no barrier between him and them because there, were no, there was no sin. They were completely at ease in the presence of the Holy One of the universe. His brightness of glory and righteousness was completely unthreatening. It was inviting and warming to them because they were in tune with it. They were created in the image of God to walk in the glory of God for His glory and for their good and their joy. Then Genesis 3 happens. Um, take a look at Genesis 3, and uh, that's page 2. Now the serpent was more crafty... Craft... <laughs> now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Um, the serpent here is, we know from broader theology, that he is, in fact, the demonic force. Um, there was a, an unseen angelic world that was created before Adam and Eve, and there was a rebellion in that, and um, basically the, the chief of the angels, the most glorious one, uh, the star of the morning, thought he should be equivalent with the glory of God. And so he rose up against God. Um, God wasn't really threatened, just cast him out. And he shows up. Why? Because he's trying to rob God of his glory. That's why he's approaching Adam and Eve. He, he resents them. Adam and Eve are the stewards of the entire created order. Mud men created in the image of God for the glory of God. I'm sure he was incredibly offended by this. And so he wanted to, to deceive them and lead them astray. So he shows up, right? And he says to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said the serpent, to the serpent, we may eat of any fruit in the, in the tree in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the, free, the, <laughs> the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. For God knows that when you'll eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You will be equal to God you will have a glory that is equivalent to God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, a lot of self-justification going on there, she took its fruit and she ate and she gave it to her husband, idiot, who was with her. Serious. I mean, he's standing right there. His job's to protect her. He's just passive. First sin right there. And he ate. All right. We can pick on them all we want. The reality is they didn't do anything we wouldn't have done or that we don't do daily. What did they do? What was the heart of their sin? The heart of their sin was this. It was cosmic treason. They wanted the glory of God. They wanted to be the center of all things. They wanted God's throne, right? They wanted to be the center. And so they committed cosmic treason. They rebelled against God with the attempt to dethrone God and take His throne for themselves didn't work out that way. What happened here, you guys, was the most destructive bomb in the entire universe, more destructive than any nuclear weapon. It was a sin bomb, the first sin of cosmic treason ever committed. And when that bomb went off, it exploded every relationship in the entire created order. It brought in 
death. Death is not ceasing to be. When you die, you don't, you don't just you know, like disappear. Death is separation. That's the essence of death. Spiritual death is separation from God, the source of life. Physical death is the separation of your spirit from your body. Okay? Death is separation. What happened in the garden was that they introduced death into the four key relationships, the four fundamental relationships of the created order. And we see that. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and study it. We're not going to dig through it, but sit in Genesis 3 and read through it. And you'll see this because it's pretty clear as you read through. But you're going to see, first of all, there's an immediate separation between them and their God, the source of life. He becomes threatening to them. He becomes alien to them. They feel like they have to hide from him. Why? Because he's righteous and they're not. His glory is now threatening to them because they are less than that glory. They come into the very fire of the presence of God with impurity, and God's fire consumes impurity. God is now threatening to them. The source of life is now alienated from them. They're separated from God. And because of that, it disrupts every other relationship. First of all, you see it disrupting their relationship with themselves, right? They disappear into the, into the bushes, and what do they do? They, they sow underoos out of fig leaves, right? They, they're creating like the, these, these plant underwear. Why? Because they're suddenly aware of their nakedness. Now, this isn't the Bible being, you know, saying that physical nakedness is somehow inherently evil. That's not the point. The point is, for the first time in human existence, they understood shame. For the first time in human existence, they understood neurosis. They understood what it was to not be at peace with yourself, They had lost life, the connection of life with God, and as a result, it broke their relationship with themselves. Every single one of us struggles with that from that day on. We're all hiding in the bushes trying to sow our little fig leaves. We're all trying to find ways to find peace with ourselves, right? I'll do this, and then I'll be a man. I'll do this, and then I'll be a woman. I'll do this, and then I'll be beautiful. I'll do this, and then I'll measure up. I'll do this, and then finally I'll be okay with myself. Meanwhile, you got this crazy little voice in the back of your head that's constantly telling you you don't measure up, you're not cool enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not smart enough, you're an idiot, you're a loser, and you're condemned. Right there, it's from the bomb of sin. It was introduced in the garden, and it's plagued us ever since. We've also lost our, our... our peace with one another. That bomb affected our relationships with other people. Immediately, we see it in the garden. In the garden, all they had were each other, right? It was the closest, tightest form of community, and it's the family. What's the most dysfunctional place you can ever be? You ever notice this? It's in your family, where people are actually relaxed enough to let down their garden, be themselves, and it's ugly, isn't it? I mean, what's more dysfunctional than a Thanksgiving family dinner, right? All this current going on underneath the table and all this politeness going on above it, right? And occasionally what's underneath comes out on top and it's ugly, right? We see that in the garden. What happened in the, in the very first family? Eve's sons? First murder. First murder. In their marriage? Yeah, marriage was designed to be this place of mutual love and acceptance and, and, and mutual submission and honoring and respect, as soon as, as, soon as they, they sinned and they broke their, their peace with God, marriage became a place of competition, a pay, place of power plays. It affected their relationship with their kids. It affected all the human relationships that came out of it. You know why? Because when God's not at the center, I have to be. And if I have to be, you can't be. And that means you are threatening to me. My spouse is threatening to me. My kids are threatening to me. Why? Because I want to be the center. I want to be the glorious one. If God's not on his throne, I have to be. And if I have to be, I'm in competition with every other person on the face of the earth. I have to be better. I have to be the center. You have to revolve around me. You have to serve me. You have to feed my ego. You have to make me feel good about myself. You have to, all these things. And we get so mad in our marriage because our spouses simply aren't revolving around us and serving us as if we were God. It's the effect of the bomb, man. The sin bomb went off, and it affected our relationship with ourselves, with each other, and honestly, it affected our relationship with the entire created order. We were designed to be the stewards of of the entire universe. God made these little mud men, breathed His life into them, made them in His image, and then said, guess what? You get to be the stewards. You're going to care for everything I've made. You're going to oversee it for my glory and for your joy. What ended up happening is when we rebelled against God, we broke that relationship. And now even creation rises up against us. We still see 
It's a glorious ru- ruin. All of this is, right? I mean, even with ourselves, there's, there's glory there, but it's ruined. With, in our marriages, we get glimpses of glory, but it's ruined. In, in all of creation, right, there's glimpses of glory as we steward and move out with the cultural mandate of, of developing what God has entrusted to us. But even what we develop rebels against us. And we have hurricanes and earthquakes and, and tornadoes and, 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 and the things we create become our worst enemies. That's the bomb that went off in Genesis 3, you guys. It was a bomb of death. It was a sin bomb. And it was the most destructive bomb that ever went off. And we're still feeling the repercussive effects of that bomb today. It's still moving out and still destroying. And the reality is we are continually, each one of us, trying to adapt to that bomb. We're trying to fix the problem. You know you're separated from God, so what do you do? No, you do good things, try and impress Him. You go to church, you read your Bible, you pray, you, you study theology, you, you do all these things. Why? A lot of times we do it simply because we think those are the things we need to do to get God to like us more. We know we're separated from God, so we're trying to do the things to bridge the gap, right? We're sowing our fig leaves. We got our own solution to our problem. We're, we're broken with our relationships around us, and so, you know, we're constantly trying to fix those. We're, we're broken in our relationship with ourselves. We try and fix that, right? You're trying to accomplish enough, win enough, do enough, be liked enough, be beautiful enough, get enough praise from everybody so you can finally feel good about yourself, finally feel like you're worthwhile, finally feel like you measure up. They're fig leaves, you guys. They don't fix the problem. We can't fix the problem. You know why? Because we are the problem. It's a death problem, and we're dead. (laughs) We are separated from the source of life, God. We don't have the power to breathe life into the corpse and bring it back to life. We're powerless, absolutely powerless to solve the most central damaging problems of humanity. The best we can do is sow fig leaves together and dance until it burns. That's why we need the power of God. We need a greater power. And and you guys, this is what I want you to catch. God's power is most clearly demonstrated in the resurrection. You know why? Because on the cross... What did Jesus do? He stepped into ground zero of Genesis chapter 3. He stepped into the center of the death bomb, and he completely absorbed it. He lived the life we should have lived. He was born. He lived a perfect life without sin, and yet he died a sinner's death. Why? Because he became sin for us. The Holy One of God so fully identified Himself with our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that He who knew no sin became sin for us. And as He became sin, as He fully identified Himself with our cosmic rebellion, the righteous judge of the universe judged Him, crushed Him, destroyed Him, and poured out on Him all the death that our rebellion had earned. And he absorbed it all. He drank the whole cup. There was nothing left. He stepped into ground zero and he, ex- he, he absorbed the explosion. And when he rose from the dead, it was evidence that he had entered into death, but he had conquered death. That he had identified with sin, but he had paid the price for sin that He had brought the cosmic solution that we could never earn ourselves. When He rose from the dead, He rose from the dead, not just in His own victory, but ours. Now remember, the the consequence of sin is death, right? So so if Jesus hadn't satisfied God in regard to our, our sin, He would have never risen from the dead. Why? Because He had fully identified Himself with our sin. The fact that He rose from the dead proves our forgiveness is complete. That there is, in fact, an offer of absolution, an offer of of, of restoration, that we can be redeemed and restored because the price has been paid. We have a hero who stepped in to the explosive power of our rebellion. That bomb absorbed it. 
and came out in new life. And that resurrection is a new kind of bomb. That resurrection is a life bomb that will have repercussive effects in the lives of those who believe. There is an immeasurable power that comes from the work of Christ, and it has been unleashed in the lives of those who believe. We just don't see it. It is more powerful than sin. It is more powerful than death. It is more powerful than your neurosis. It is more powerful than your addictions. It is more powerful than your history. It is more powerful than the abuse you've suffered. It is more powerful than the abuse you've caused. It is more powerful than any force of darkness or or slavery or sin or hurt that is in your life. It is the power to breathe life into a corpse. It is the power to make a desert bloom. It's the power to restore what's been lost. And He's the only one that can do it. If you think about the four areas that sin destroyed, the cross heals and and brings life. Our relationship with God is completely healed. Why? Because we have a new relationship with God. Not based on our performance for God, but based on Christ's performance for us. He was my substitute. He was my hero. When I believe in Him, I rest in Him. I'm covered with His righteousness. I am completely right with God. I have been restored. I am as Christ is. Not because I deserve it. Not because I've earned it. That's why it's called grace. It is the outpouring of unmerited, unearned favor. I am right with God because He's my hero. So my my most key relationship is restored. I am right with God, which means I can be right with others. I've been forgiven, so I can forgive. I've been made whole in my relationship with God, so there is a promise of wholeness in my relationship with others even if they're not whole. God, think about this, the repercussive effects of the explosion of this bomb, you guys. Think about the scope. Not only restores your relationship with God, there are broken relationships in your life right now. There are areas in which you are harboring bitterness. There are areas in which you have been deeply hurt. There is a power greater than your pain. There's a power greater than those who have hurt you and abused you. There is a power greater than the slavery you are under to the bitterness of your soul. It restores our relationship with ourselves. Profound. It frees us from having to establish our identity outside of Christ to try and build our kingdom. I am worthwhile because I measure up because I, I am good because. Forget all that. I measure up because of Christ. I'm good because of Christ. I'm made whole because of Christ. That message is hmm, completely free. It changes the way we approach all of life. I'm no longer using the things of life to establish my validity in life. I'm resting in Christ, which allows me to enjoy the gifts of God instead of trying to turn those gifts into God's. I can find peace with myself. I can find freedom from my addictions. Some of you are are like, you don't believe this yet. You have no idea the power that's in you. You can be set free. The bomb went off. The power has already been unleashed. And ultimately, we're going to see that restoration work its way out through the entire created order. Do you get that? That there will come a time when the redemption and restoration of Christ will be demonstrated in the entire created order, and once again, we will be the stewards of all things that were created, that we will see the peace of God. That life bomb is going to work its way out to the point where everything is once again brought to center itself on the glory of God for the name of God where we get the, glory, we get the joy. God gets His glory, we get the joy. He's the center, we revolve around Him, and we steward the created order for His glory. Genesis 1, we begin with a garden. Genesis, or Revelation 21, we end with a city. You know what's at the heart of both of those images? A people of God following in the name of God, developing the created order for the glory of God. We're talking about cosmic implications. But they're not so cosmic, they're not personal. 
because God's cosmic plan is worked out through the personal life of everyone who follows Christ. It is definitely cosmic. It is definitely personal. All right, so here, here what does it look like for God to open our eyes? What is the practical application here? Um, there are three things that I want to take a look at that I think um, will happen if our eyes are progressively being, progressively being opened to the power of God. We'll never fully understand it, but if our eyes are being opened to a greater and greater degree to the incredible, immeasurable might of His power that He exercised in the resurrection of Christ and that He's now unleashed in our lives, these things will happen. First of all, we'll have greater confidence in His strength and greater awareness of our weakness. Uh, I think in our circle, there are some who have moved into the second part without moving into the first. We spend a lot of time just talking about how we need to be authentic and we need to be honest and we need to recognize our brokenness. And I think we do a pretty good job of creating a safe space for people to simply be broken, right? We know we're a hospital. Uh, We know sick people come to the hospital and we know that people are going to, you know, be struggling. We know that. And we try to create a safe space for people to be honest. So we don't show up and have to pretend to be plastic and and to pretend what we're not, right? Um, So that we're this place that looks all happy and, and behind the scenes, everyone's just dying, right? The challenge is this. We have some people that have moved into that honesty. I'm broken. But they haven't moved into the confidence. And so they just sit in grace as forgiveness, but not grace as power. What they do is basically say, I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I get it. I sit in the misery of my brokenness every day and thank God for grace because at least I'm forgiven. But then they just sit in it. Do you not see that grace is not just forgiveness, but power? Grace isn't about forgiving you. It's about transforming you. You've lost sight of the power of God. As you move into a greater awareness of your weakness, If your eyes are progressively being opened to the power of God, you're also going to move into a progressive confidence in His strength. You will have a greater vision than you can dream for yourself. You'll have a greater hope than than you can hope for yourself. You're going to have less confidence in yourself, but you're going to have greater confidence in Him. You're not going to move into fear. Some of you are like totally freaked out by this because you know God's good and you know He's powerful, but it really freaks you out to think that you're not in control of your own life. You have your plan, you have your set, right? And the idea that, that um, God is, is greater than your plan, that He's going to tell a greater story for your life, isn't a comfort to you, it's a threat to you. Because God's, you know what I'm saying? It's like you're afraid. If you're getting a vision of how great His power is and that His power is governed by His love in grace, you will move not into fear, but into freedom. You will move into greater confidence, basically saying to God, it's your story, not mine. And you're telling it in a way that I wouldn't tell it, but I trust you because you have the power of life. We'll start to experience that power. In trying to apply this, I mean, I'm just, as I was struggling with this this week, I was really trying to push it down to its simplest, most practical level. What does this look like? I don't want to just stand up here and say a bunch of nice words and, and give you religious platitudes and walk away and say, oh yeah, those are great ideas. What does this actually look like in our lives? And I think it's this. I, I think it comes down to this comes down very simply to humility and gratitude. We come to God with our self-salvation projects. We have a vision for how we want to be saved. We have a vision for how we want to be delivered. We want a vision for how our life's going to turn out. And then we kind of turn to God and say, all right, God, will you bless my self-salvation project? That's pride. It's not trust, that's pride. Our self-salvation project gets in the way of God's salvation project, and it blocks us from seeing and experiencing the power of God. And we come to even resent the power of God because God's power will come in and kick out the props underneath our false supports, the things that are actually robbing us from experiencing His power. And then we get all mad. It's like, what are you doing disrupting my life? You guys, when a bomb goes off, things are disrupted, even if it's a life bomb a good bomb. Things are disrupted, but they're disrupted in a good way for a good purpose. God is in the process of dragging you out of your coffin. He's made you alive in Christ. He's not going to leave you in the coffin. He is going to transform you so that you're like Christ. And that means you're going to have to learn how to trust him. It means you're going to have to learn to let him be the center and stop shoving him out of the way. 
and actually come to rest in the fact that His power is greater than yours. And that means we need to move to a place of humility, not pride, which will unleash in our souls gratitude. Here's my challenge for you, very practical in connection with this. Where do you need to see the power of God unleashed in your life? Where are you struggling in slavery? Where are you struggling under the darkness of sin? Where are you struggling under the blackness of unforgiveness? Where are you struggling? Where in the storyline of that hurt can you find room for gratitude? Because there is a single thread that runs through your entire life as a follower of Christ, and it's a thread of grace. And if you grab that thread and follow it, it will lead you. And the only way to find the thread of grace is to find a heart of gratitude. What has God done for you and what is He doing in you? See, when we're not grateful, we're resentful. When we're not grateful, we're angry. We're looking at God basically saying, you're not telling the story I want to tell. And so we get filled with self-pity. We get filled with anger. We may even sanctify it, right? Turn it into prayer requests and all this sort of stuff. Silly things Christians do, you know? But the reality is what we're trying to do is ultimately replace God's will for ours. Humility allows us to find gratitude. God, I don't like this situation right now, but I know your hand of blessing is in it. I don't like what's been done to me or what happened to me, but there is in it the power. To, you have the power to ultimately enter into it and give me redemption. You have poured out and shown to me your grace. How can I move into gratitude? And in moving into gratitude, how can I have a greater vision for how you're going to redeem and restore and set me free? We'll have greater confidence in His strength and a greater awareness of our weakness, and that is freedom. We'll be less confident in ourselves and more confident in Him. What happens as we do that is we will have a greater awareness of our need for prayer, and we'll sense a greater urgency to pray. Um, some people approach prayer as if it really were a, an issue of, of self-discipline. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like, man, I need to pray more. So they get up, you know, I'm going to set my alarm. I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. I'm going to get, and I, and I go and I get in my little prayer closet and, and then pretty soon I'm sleeping on my face, right? And then I wake up and I'm, bam, bam, I'm going to punish myself because I didn't pray long enough. I didn't focus enough. I'm going to make myself, okay, now I'm really going to, you guys, do you have to fight yourself to breathe? No. But you know when you, you, you need to breathe the most is when you don't have oxygen, right? If I shove you underwater, I mean, beautiful illustration of baptism, entering into death and coming back to new life. If I shove you underwater and hold you long enough, you're going to panic because you kind of need something out, out here. It's called air, right? And when you finally get out of there, uh, I won't hold you under that long, but when you finally get out of there, you like, <gasps> you know, it's like, oh, air, I love it, mm. right? Been missing that stuff. You want to pray more? Ask God to open your eyes to the reality that you need to pray. If you are desperate for God, you will pray just like you will breathe. Prayer isn't an issue of self-discipline. It's an issue of need. When you need to pray, you will pray. When you get how powerless you are and how powerful God is, you will pray. You will come into the presence of God and you will ask Him to solve your problems instead of trying to solve them yourself. You'll stop trying to, to, to come up with all of your plans and all of your, you'll be going to God saying, God, what's your plan? How are you going to fix this? It gets incredibly practical. <laughs> I don't have enough money to pay my bill. Hey, God, how are you going to fix this? Is He powerful enough to pay your bill? Yeah. If he can raise people from the dead, he can pay your bills. He can fix your car. He can restore your health. Oh, Steve, you're starting to sound like those prosperity guys. Well, the prosperity guys take a truth and they twist it into a lie, but there's still a truth there. God has the power to redeem and restore. He has the power. And if he has the power, how stupid would we be not to go talk to him about it, Right? When we understand how weak and powerless we are and how powerful He is, we will pray, and we will pray with greater urgency. We will come to Him. Like the, 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 Jesus told that parable of that woman that went to the, the dude in the middle of the night, and she banged on the door. I need three loaves of bread. He's like, shut up. Bam, bam, bam. I need three loaves of bread. 
Finally, he's like, all right, I'm going to go back to sleep. Come on, here's your three loaves of bread, right? Jesus wasn't saying that's how God is, but he's saying that when we get the urgency of how weak we are and how much he can provide, we'll pray like that. When's the last time you prayed like that? When is the last time you kicked down the door pleading with God because he had the power and you didn't? It's not that God doesn't hear you, and and it's not that God doesn't want to respond to you. But when we pray, God does something in us that changes us that doesn't happen to us when we don't pray. Prayer is a confession of our weakness. Prayer is an expression of our humility. And when we enter into God's presence in that weakness, in that humility, it opens us up to the transformative power of the Spirit in our lives, and it changes us. God doesn't just want to answer our prayers. He wants to set us free. And he will use the needs in our lives to drive us to that place of our awareness of how incredibly weak we are so that we will come to celebrate how incredibly strong he is. We'll pray. Third thing is I think we will also see greater boldness in our hope and on mission. We will see greater boldness in our hope. Why? Because <laughs> Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> A new bomb has been set off, a bomb of redemption and restoration that is going to completely transform the entire universe. And that power resides in us. It begins with us. Where are you hopeless right now? Where are you afraid to hope? You need the eyes of your heart enlightened to the power of God. You need to see that the the bomb of death and of separation, man, Jesus silenced those shockwaves and he has sent out new shockwaves into your life of redemption and restoration. Where are you afraid to hope? And where are you afraid to be bold on mission? We have a God of mission. We have a God who's on mission, has been for all of eternity to to have a people to his name where he is the center, he gets the glory and they get the joy. It's already happening, guys. The victory has already been won. The bomb has already gone off. How are we not bold on mission with our God of mission? How are we not bold in living out in the joy of our salvation and sharing that joy freely with others and loving people without agenda? Trusting that the Spirit of God has a greater power than we have to ultimately work redemption and restoration through us and in us. We will be bold. We'll be bold. Hmm. There's a quote in your bulletin. I just loved it. Basically, never let someone tell you no who doesn't have the power to tell you yes. If you get this, you'll get that. If you get that God is the one with the power, you're not going to be so quick to let people tell you no. And I'm not talking about like no to, you know, will you give me $10? No. All right. All right. Stop bugging them. It's okay. What I'm talking about is like, where, where's the no in your life? Where are you just blocked, man? You're just it's like, oh, I think I want to move in this direction. No. Okay. Right? You're just cowed and intimidated because you don't understand the power that's been unleashed within you. When people see this, man, they live revolutionary lives. They walk in crazy freedom. They walk in abounding joy. They can even rejoice in their suffering. We need God to open our eyes progressively to the incredible, immeasurable might of his power, the same power that he exercised when he raised Jesus from the dead and is now working in and through us.